0: Good morning, it's a Pee Waka and this is my virtual garden, this is my podcast and I call it Garden Link. Well I began recording episode 3 of my podcast Garden Link on Monday the 29th of August and I've spoken to three people, Jim McLaughlin who is a daffodil grower, to Steve Ratton, who writes in the newspapers about garden, and to Tom Innes, who has a, what I would call a self-sufficiency garden, and his garden is nestled in the foothills right under the Southern Alps. I recorded more than you're going to hear of these uh, three interviews. Um, I had to edit them down, they were rather long. I hope to revisit both the interviews and the speakers again at other times. But here we go. Our first speaker is Jim McLaughlin, who I spoke to on the phone early on Monday morning. Let's start talking about your daffodils. How long have you been doing it? Right, uh,
1: 1997. We bought the collection, so um, 19 years now. Yep.
0: 19 years. OK. How big is it?
1: Uh, well, we've just downsized by a couple of acres. Um, in reality, we're about 15 acres.
0: And uh, obviously not all the same.
1: No, no, we're uh, probably at least two, three hundred different varieties out there.
0: Wow. Uh, how do you know that you, where they are? Have you got markers all over the place?
1: <laughs> well, uh, six weeks ago you'd describe it as looking like a seagull cemetery because at the front of each variety we there's a white peg painted with its uh, code, so we can, uh, yeah, locate it when we need to go out and dig them.
0: Okay. Well, what would be your biggest one?
1: Our biggest variety? Yes. Uh, You mean quantity-wise?
0: Well, yes, in terms of numbers uh, that you Uh, have.
1: Well, um, of course, our collection's called David Bell Daffodils, and David was a famous breeder of but and his aim was to breed the perfect orange cup, um, and maybe breed a trumpet, the yellow petals with an orange trumpet. Uh, so there's a lot of those out there, uh, but he also bred the colour pink, so there's um, quite a few uh, pink splits and doubles, there's
0: what lots, would, lots of lots. Yeah, uh, lots and lots, Well, <laughs> but even so, which would be the most popular that you grow?
1: Um, well, I guess uh, it would probably be a, a double daffodil, so that looks more like a carnation or a um, frilly, lots of layers. Um, But because they have an extended flowering season, it really comes down to whichever one's flowering at the time that I have a visitor. (laughs) Uh, Usually uh, a white-pink double or um, a yellow-orange, which is very eye-catching.
0: And when does the picking season start?
1: Well, I actually picked my first sort of yesterday. Uh, Very late season, though, for us this year. Um, Previously, I've sort of been picking from the middle of August. So now it's uh, a couple of weeks late, end of August. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll be picking for the next, weather permitting, uh, five or six weeks.
0: Okay, when you say I'll be picking, um, I'm sure you're not picking them all on your own, are you?
1: <laughs> no, I don't pick all on my own, but I am very much hands on, and I certainly pick for um, a roadside wagon and the majority of the doubles and the fancier deaths uh, mm. for the market. Yeah, I'll have maybe two or three part timers come and pick for me to do the bulk of um, the easier picking.
0: And where are you going to send them?
1: Well, yeah, we have our roadside store with, uh, three times a week. We send them to Floramax, so that's uh, our auctions. do supply funky pumpkins um, and have done other fruit-veggie outlets um, over the years. Yeah, the odd store like Rickerton Market. Um, and, of course, we have lots of visitors, so um, yeah, rest times come by the minibus full and so yeah, what I don't pick becomes a, a visual display, and yeah, many of those are picked by my visitors.
0: Um, now, now, when are you actually digging your bulbs?
1: We dig, uh, we'll probably start um, first, second week of January. So I make the most of uh, school kids on mm. holiday, and um, so they become my team. Uh, so we might dig maybe three or four um, acres worth of at least um and so yeah they dug by a converted stone picker that my husband converted so the bulbs drop on top of the ground once they've gone over the conveyor belt at the back and they dry in the sun for um a couple of days ideally and then uh yeah then our teams come along with bags and buckets and we pick them up and mm. store them and work our way through grading um grading them all sell the big ones and replant the little ones
0: do some of them go overseas?
1: Yeah, we, we don't do the export thing, you need special licences for that and um, uh, I like to do most of it myself, so I, I don't want to get much bigger mm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's mostly domestic um, market. We we'll sell nationwide, We PGG rights in stores nationwide right. and have our own websites, there's a lot of mail order stuff.
0: And do you need to advertise very widely or is it word of mouth that people know that you grow daffodils?
1: Um, I, I both. By now, nearly 20 years in, I tend to be the go-to person for advice or, you know, product.
0: Well, when we talked earlier, um, you told me that you were in the Avenues uh, magazine. Yes. How did that come about?
1: We, uh, we did belong to the David Circle, which is based in Christchurch, and so the chair of that, David Adams is his name. Yes. And so he had been approached by the editor of the Avenues magazine, and so David put them on to us. As
0: commercial growers, David was a, as a breeder. Well, I've got to say the, the pictures look pretty good. Oh,
1: great,
0: thanks. <laughs> it uh, sounded like the sort of idyllic way of uh, living, making a, a living from daffodils. I, I have a sneaking suspicion it's a lot of hard work.
1: <laughs> I didn't read it as being an idyllic lifestyle. Mike. <laughs>
0: <laughs> have you got a particular favourite?
1: I do. I do like smelly ones. I I think white, white. Uh, here's some white tubers we've got out there, um, or white trumpet. Depends on the day, and the season, and my mood.
0: Okay. <laughs> do you think some keep better than others when you've picked them and put them in a vase?
1: They do actually. Yes, the yellow does tend to, in orange, the deeper colours do tend to last longer
0: in a vase. So, uh, if I'm driving along the road past your place, your stall's going to be open hopefully until um, the, the end of September and perhaps even into October?
1: Oh, I, I would imagine, yeah. Oh. Uh, at least a week into October, I hope.
0: Well, next I picked up the phone, then started talking uh, to Steve Ratton. I phoned him up at uh, Lincoln University where he works. And this is some of the conversation we had. <laughs> okay, Steve, what are, what, what are you doing at this time of year in your garden?
2: What I'm doing in my vegetable garden is, of course, harvesting things that were planted many months ago. Yeah. And my absolute favourite at the moment is purple-sprouting fr- purple broccoli. And I call that the asparagus of the cabbage kingdom. That's what I call it. Yeah. It's the most delightful brassica. And lots and lots of small purple heads on little green shoots. And um, it's wonderful in stir-fries stir and it's very productive at the moment. There's a white version, too. So it's called purple-sprouting broccoli. Um, the packet says you can sow the seeds in spring or early summer. So mm-hmm. I have sown some in a seed tray in my tunnel house. Yeah. But I've never done that before. I normally plant plants out in autumn and they mature in early spring. Mm-hmm. So that's my... Um, asparagus of the cabbage kingdom. I'm also, um, the broad beans were sown at three different dates, and they're doing absolutely fine. Some are just about to open their flower buds. But planting out brassicas is my main aim at the moment. That's broccoli, cauliflower, and various cabbage plants. I also went to my son's garden down the road this weekend. He doesn't know much about gardening, but his kids do love carrots. Mm. So I sowed four rows each of one different variety of carrots. Which
0: well, carrots did you go for?
2: I went for a new one from Egmont called Samantha, an old one from Egmont called um, Senior, yes. and another two which I can't remember. So I always grow a variety, but my top carrot every year is Senior from Egmont Seeds, and I strongly recommend Senior. <clears throat> it's perfectly cylindrical. And absolutely
0: delicious. Uh, is it uh, a long season or a short season in terms of uh, from sowing to harvest?
2: Oh, it's a main crop, really. But um, in my tonneau house, I sowed some in uh, April after the tomatoes came out. And now we're harvesting baby carrots in uh, late August, which is an absolute delight. And mm. that, again, is senior. So you can force it a little bit.
0: Mm. I, I, I grow Paris Market uh, and those sort of very short, stumpy ones for, as my my quick carrots. Mm,
2: I don't like Paris Market. Oh, they're almost spherical, almost aren't they? Yes. <laughs> they're tedious to peel. I prefer the long ones like... <laughs> like
0: uh, <in> <laughs> and I certainly agree about the purple broccoli because I've been picking some too
2: the um, the asparagus of the cabbage kingdom I write uh, I write in the New Zealand Herald weekend every week now about gardening so I think I'll use that phrase next
1: hmm. time I
2: write the story it's um, it will it'll win that one that, that phrase okay you can use it you can use it anytime if you like
0: <laughs> <laughs> um oh, d- you have I know in the past talked about uh, some of the kales like the sort of very dark uh, leafed uh, Cavalier Nero uh, yeah. you, are you harvesting that at the moment
2: yes we've been harvesting um, Italian Italian black cabbage, right? All winter, Cavallone Nero, or another one, another name for it is Palm Tree de, de, or di Toscana, but that's too fancy. So if if you if somebody wants it, mm. just ask the C company for Italian black cabbage. Mm. It's like a candelabra, and if you look at if you grow it properly, as I'm sure you do, mm. Mike, it can be a metre and a half tall, and you just pull off the leaves. And eat it all through the winter. And it's almost blue, isn't it? So it's got very high antioxidant mm. levels in it. And what I do is, like most cabbage leaves, it has a midrib, you know, in other words, a stalk going mm. down the centre of the leaf. And I, I just strip the the green leaf off the stalk. Okay. And then compost stalks, what well, are called midribs, really. Mm. Then mm. I cook it very quickly in a little bit of boiling water. And then I cool it in cold water. And then in, in the palm of my hand, I squeeze out the water from this now cooked cabbage leaf collection mm-hmm. and then finally slice it on the chopping ball with a sharp knife mm-hmm. and then do a quick stir fry in oil, olive oil with a bit of garlic and a few chili flakes. And okay. if people don't like cabbage mm-hmm. or they think they don't, try that and it just transforms it.
0: Okay. Now, 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 knowing as I do that you are uh, very aware of the organisms around, the uh, pests, the diseases and the beneficials, um, uh-huh. if I'm a gardener at the moment in my vegetable packs, what am I looking out for?
2: Well, I've seen I've no seen white butterflies yet, but there will be some soon.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay.
2: So, um, the other bane of everybody's life, of course, is that the carrot fly, maggots, yes. persist all through winter and they grow. Yes, and the carrots in my open garden are in a bit of a state now. Mm. And I'm spending a lot of time just cutting out the carrot fly damage as I prepare them for the meal. Mm-hmm. I don't mind doing that, but uh, it is rather tedious. And bacteria and the fungi move into the damage. Mm. My carrots have got these enormous black patches on them, so their days are numbered, I think.
0: Uh, you... All I
2: do is I chuck them in the wheelbarrow with a sharp spade. Yeah. I chop them up mm. for a compost for composting, <clears throat> and then they, they're less likely to generate new carrot flies in the spring.
0: You've done work on uh, preventing the carrot flies spreading too much, haven't you? You've put in little barrier strips. Uh, and, and, ha- am I right in that?
2: Um, we worked with Heinz Watties actually years ago, and they're commercial carrots, because they obviously get carrot fly. Mm. And this tip is only relevant to really large areas, because most of the eggs are laid by the female fly in the outer five metres of the carrot paddock. Mm. so what he did is they um, did use pesticide on those outer bits which is normal Mm. but they didn't need any for what was about 95% of the the field which is clever, however in your garden it's all edge so you're not going to get any any patches of carrots with the centre which is missed by the fly so I just tolerate it but again that frost cloth I mentioned yeah. would be very good at getting early germination and would
0: keep the fly off. Well, I'm not going to ask you what you're going to be doing in two or three weeks' time because i hope to talk to you then in two or three weeks' time about what you're doing, but well, that was really good.
2: Well, we gardeners like talking, don't we? Yes.
0: And then the last person I spoke to was Tom Innes. I found him uh, late in the afternoon on Monday and we started talking about his gardening up in Springfield, uh, which is... As I said, close under the Southern Alps. Well, let's start off with how long have you been on your current property and what are you trying to do there?
3: Well, we've been um, living here permanently for about two and a half years, but we bought the place about 12 years ago and started um, planting and gardening then, although, of course, things have accelerated in the last few years, Mm. um, which means some of our fruit trees are five, six, seven, eight years old, but probably the most of them are three or four
0: and what's the, what are you trying to do on the property? Uh, just live from it?
3: Yeah, well, we're, we're aiming to feed ourselves um, vegetables and fruit, um, and we have bees and a few other things going on as well, but, you know, we've got two quarter-acre sections, so that's, you know, half an acre or 2,000 square metres, and various buildings on the place, and then we're gardening in around that. And um, we're gardening using permaculture principles, Um quite a large area, we've got about a 20 by 20 metre area that is, um, we're annual cropping but under fruit trees and the idea there is that when the the fruit trees get a bit bigger we'll sort of morph that into a a perennial forest garden so the currents and things will come into that area Mm -hmm. and we'll open up some new areas for sort of annual crops, um, Mm -hmm. kitchen garden type areas. We,
0: we'd better tell people where exactly you're living, or roughly where you're living, because your, your climate's a bit different from mine's, so they won't have the foggiest idea what your climate is like. Right, no, that's right. Now, we're in Springfield Village,
3: um, and we're at about 385 metres above sea level. We um, are in an extra-high wind zone for the builders there, so we get some pretty horrific winds. Um, but probably as important as that for gardening is we get late frost and early frost. I mean, we can really have snow or frost any month of the year, but just as an example, um, we were still getting quite healthy frost into December last year.
0: Oh my goodness.
3: Which makes it a little bit tricky trying to get fruit to set and, you know, things like that.
0: Does this mean things like tomatoes and sweet corn won't grow for you?
3: No, we've done very well with some of those things, actually. Um, and, I mean, again, it's a number of common gardening strategies for that. But I mean, we, um, we sort of, of course, the first thought is, oh, we need glasshouse, glass house. And then we looked at the cost of glass houses and what you get for the money you spend and thought, well, gosh, um, it's an expensive small area. So instead we invested about a $1,000 in some um, electrical conduit and bought some good quality frost cloth and greenhouse film and bird netting mm-hmm. and had been working on cloaching.
0: Okay, and
3: extending our season that way and protecting plants and that's actually been very successful and we've got a very sort of a low tech easy to move, easy to put up and down system hmm. Um, Elliot Coleman is the guru on all of that so we look at his clips on YouTube and follow some of his kind of approaches
0: I'm sure he'll appreciate the plug (laughs) Yeah,
3: yeah, well I mean we found it really helpful
0: Right, Um, uh, so now here we are we're end of August going into September so what are you lining yourself up for now?
3: Dorothy's been busy seed um, sowing inside, so we've got little tomato plants and capsicum plants and onions and things happening.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and we grow those actually in the house. So we're right now, we, or well, today, we had a discussion about windowsills and where we put things, which we have this discussion every year and we sort of jerry-rig shells and things, but we, we get by. Um, it turns the house into a bit of a forest itself for a while there, but it's all good fun. <laughs> um, Dorothy sowed peas just yesterday mm. um, and she's been experimenting with things like spreading onion seeds among existing crops and letting them come through in the spring mm. Um, things like that uh,
0: so, so you quite like the idea of, and the principle behind mixed planting in your vegetable garden you don't have one area for this and one area for that? No, we do tend to mix it up quite a lot um,
3: and I mean, we're not sort of Strict on companion planting or those sort of things, but it's really just a case of what will grow where and where there's room. And we tend to um, we started off with great intentions for strict rotations and all of that, but we seem to end up just putting things where they fit, really. Mm. Um, But again, we've been experimenting with some, um, you know, under sowing or or, or sowing seed among, uh, you know, stubble or cut green crops and things, and seeing what comes through. So we're just you know, playing around really seeing what will actually work for us up here
0: what was your soil like when you started um i, I imagine being fairly close to the mountains it might not be terribly uh, fertile it might be rather stony what's it like
3: yeah it's very light uh it's very light with some quite big stones but we've gone right from day one we've gone with a no-dig garden thing um and so over the years um we've modified our system slightly but in essence what we do is um If we want to put a garden in, we'll shape up edges and things, but um, we'll basically soak cardboard or newspaper in water, lay that down thickly over the grass or area that we're developing, um, and then cover that in leaf mould or wood chip and wait for that to break down a bit, and then plant into that. Mm
0: -hmm. And you don't have any problems getting access to things like leaf mould and uh, bark chip where you are? I wouldn't think you would.
3: No, no, wood chip, not bark chip, quite an important difference here, But no, um, but it is a case of um, just having your ear to the ground. I mean, we're both full time on the property. So, I mean, the other day we heard somebody chipping. So I popped out down the road and there was Sycon felling some trees in the domain. So I went and said to them, Oh, you know, have you got somewhere for the chip? And they said, Oh, no, we're carting it back to Darfield. Have you got somewhere? So I walked them around the corner and they dropped five or six, six cubic meter truckloads for nothing on our grass verge and we're very happy to be rid of it well
0: well clearly i'm not going to have any difficulty finding your place if i come visiting
3: no no just look for the mountain (laughs) yeah but anyway what i'm saying is the principle of being being on the place and available to take those opportunities has worked really well for us Uh, basically we're importing organic matter yeah yeah that's what we're actually doing so i mean you know you could use pea straw or lots of other things um and likewise with our compost we um you know, there's a neighbor, neighbor's with a horse, so I go over every six months and shovel a big load of horse poop and we build some pallet mm-hmm. compost bins and then blend that with wood chips or um, sawdust and calf poop from another neighbor's calf shed and do big, you know, three or four bin square uh, pallet square compost bins and, and sit that for a year and then spread that round.
0: I would imagine that even after just a few years, your soil is quite, quite different from when you started.
3: Oh, it's unrecognisable. Yeah, we've got a beautiful, rich, friable um, soil. And the nice thing about the free-draining soil is, um, I mean, we did no-dig gardening at the University of Canterbury Community Garden, but what we found there was we got a, a very light, friable, free-draining topsoil, um, but often the subsoil became anaerobic and kind of disgusting. mm you know, whereas here, when you dig down, it's just, it's nice all the way, and the worms um, and bits and pieces seem to have just blended everything through, and um, yeah, it's it's, it's turned, turned beautiful, very productive, very nice to work.
0: Tom, I will actually be editing this down to somewhere between five and eight minutes, I would think, so yep. not everything we've talked about will be there. Thank you very much, Tom.
3: Hey, no worries. Nice to talk to
0: you, Mike. Okay, then. Bye. 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 some folks like radishes and some curl like kale but give i bought parsnips and a great dish of taters and a lump of fatty bacon and a pint of good ale on that note about radishes and ale i think i'd better finish up this podcast went a little longer than i intended but never mind i hope you'll enjoy it and i hope you'll join up with me again when I next have something to offer. Bye.